Hey, this is Elias from the City Harmonic, and you are listening to the Frequency Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Frequency Podcast. Uh, we're so glad you joined us. And again, it's Dan and Joe here. And we're just diving back into the conversation from a previous episode uh, with Mark Allen Shelsky. Very good. Uh, I'm so yeah. proud. Now, now, can you say Elias? <laughs> I can say Elias, yes. But we all agreed that I'm, ne- I'm never going to say Elias' first name again. I'm just going to say... <laughs> Sam's brother. <laughs> I'm just going to say Sam's brother. What's and, great is we got a note from him. <laughs> yeah, so let's set the stage here. So if you listen regularly, you know we were talking about Elias Dummer from uh, the City Harmonic. And, uh, you know, I grew up with his relatives and uh, his brother and uh, played hockey with him. And, of course, you know, we're bantering back and forth about how ridiculous I am at trying to remember to say his name correctly. And uh, so I started calling him Sam's brother because I knew Sam, the goalie from hockey. And uh, he actually listened to the podcast I don't know, he's just supporting his brother, I guess, saw it in his feed, listened enough to know about the conversation, and sent us a thank you. <laughs> That's just so cool. Thank you, Sam. If you're li- still listening, yeah. you know, good on you, and thanks for the note. Uh, I'm, I'm so encouraged by that. Uh, you have no idea how encouraged I am to hear, not only hear from a listener, but hear from somebody I know who I haven't talked to in a long time, who uh, you know I really appreciated. And uh, yeah, so it's just cool to see how... Um, Sam gets the spotlight instead of Elias. So there you go. And I want to affirm you because you have said Elias like five times and got it right every time. Man. <laughs> I, I'm almost the point of tears. I'm so proud of you. I should probably retire now. <laughs> yeah, I think we're done. We and... need a new co-host. Yeah. <laughs> well, and also on top of that, I'm dealing with a cold. And I don't think I've had a cold or been sick in five years. Wow. For some reason, I don't know if it's just, you know, the stress of my daughter leaving or or starting a new season in the school. Our school has really expanded. So we got 200 students now. Last year, we had 180. A couple of years before that, we had 120. Wow. So the school is booming. We're actually expanding. Uh, we're adding six new classrooms, splitting our grades. Instead of just one and two together, it'll be one and two. Right. So we're hiring teachers, getting classrooms. So, and there's a lot of reasons for that. In um, actually, the school bell just went off. I just off. heard it. Yeah, there's a school bell. <laughs> yeah, first class is over. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, it, the landscape in Canada is changing. It's it's quite liberal in the school system, you know. So God is the least of the priority. Um, yeah. yeah. Liberalism, and I'll use that term on purpose because I don't want to talk about the details of it. Um, because I don't want to go down a conversation I can't come back from. But We've done that before, and we've thrown those away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, suffice it to say, things that are fairly anti-biblical tend to happen. And it used to be sort of veiled in public school. Now it's it's very apparent what the whole purpose of the curriculum is. So parents, in a sense, are just tired of finding out at the end of the day that their kids are learning about something like, what in the world are they talking about? Yeah. So we're getting a lot of those parents come in. And then in, in Prince Edward Island, a small island, the school system just reshaped where the kids are going to go to school. They, they changed the boundaries. boundaries. So yeah. when you're a teenager in grade eight or nine, and they say, oh, by the way, you're changing schools in the fall. That's, eh. that's rough. Oh, wow. yeah. Can you imagine the stress and the tension of losing all your friends? Yeah. Well, I grew up 
I never went to the same school for more than three years, ever. No, no, two years. Never the same school for more than two years. And so I was, because of the nature of my dad's job, we were constantly moving. Yeah. Now, at some point, you get good at making new friends, but you deal with a lot of loss, you know, through that. Is you know, There's people that you recognize, I may never see that person again. And then it, when you're a teenager, people are mean. Um, yeah. And uh, there's a... Uh, and Sometimes you have a new opportunity, you know, to redefine yourself. But yeah. then you, now there's so many landmines. And today, oh, I'm so, let's not get too much into this, but I'm yeah. so grateful that I am not a teenager today. Um, and I'm, you know, I, you've got kids that are teenagers. Um, so I'm praying all over that situation. Yeah. But I think about Sam, who's going to be nine in a few days and what it's going to be like in, let's say, five years. What's his world going to look like? And oh, well, yeah, heavy. And, yeah. and the, the biggest issue is um, truth is being redefined. And I don't yeah. just I'm not just talking about the Bible. I'm just talking about life in general. Like, you know, look at the news in the U.S. in the last month. Um, you know, like it's almost like like we're going back to the first and second world war uh, with some of the things that are going on, and we're like, didn't we figure this stuff out already? So you can tell there's still a tension in the air. And for my teens and the, all the teens in the school here, of which our high school has over a hundred students in a private, like parent pay school on a small island, that's significant. Um, people are getting tired of redefining what truth is. And we have people, we have Muslim families, we have Chinese, Japanese, uh, Nigerians, they're all coming yeah. to our school now. Um, most of these kids aren't coming because they love Jesus, they don't even know his name. So this is our mission field now. So it's an encouragement that we don't have to send teams out, they're coming to us. I love to hear the diversity and what an incredible opportunity, um, you know, to, to be recognized as a... Um, um, let's say quality educational institution. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. We started, we went from kind of funny to heavy in like two minutes. What, what, <laughs> what is our problem? I don't know. Well, there's a, some seasons. I mean, this, it was been a heavy summer season for, for both of us. So yeah. Yeah. Um, I, my wife and I've been recently talking about making the move to be intentional about introducing the lightness into our experience, finding ways to joke about things and find, um, not avoiding, um, difficult conversations, but not, but ensuring that we don't wallow in them. And we yes. found ourselves at dinner the other night and she mentioned something that one of her coworkers was doing and it was really funny. And <laughs> the three of us just all started to laugh in a way that we haven't in months. Yeah. Um, yeah. and it went, Oh, this is what this feels like. And I think, you know, part of it is, is personal, but part of it is like you say, it's the, it's just the, it's, it's a lot of what's going on today feels heavy. And frankly, folks, you don't need more heaviness. Yes. We know that. And actually that's a lot about what we're talking about is we're going into part two of our interview um, with Mark Allen Shelsky it is a lot of that mental well-being and self-care and, um, uh, being aware where there's struggles. Um, you were going to say yeah. something, and I just jumped all over. No, you, so. no, that's fine. It's um, I was just going to going to add to that to say that we need to marry struggle and joy because although Christ suffered, yeah, he spoke a lot of joy, and his his joy um, came in interacting with with people, 
And he exampled that as he walked the journey and, and when the lady wanted to touch his cloak just to be healed and um, yeah. all, all the things that happened along the journey. Most of the rebuke that he did was with the religious leaders. That's right. Yeah. He, he loved on the common people. And yeah. so as we go through and interact in life, I mean, there, there, I am sure that Jesus had an intense sense of humor. Even the way it's written in scripture about his interactions with the Pharisees, um, he was just on point. He didn't say anything, I don't think, sarcastically. He was just speaking truth. But yeah. I, can, I can imagine the chatter around saying, oh, man, he's bringing it to them. Like, look at him go. Like, I could never have said that. Like, ha ha, you know, look at these guys. They're all sweating. Yeah. You know, when you, when you see people that you know, most of the people, even though they may not be educated the way they were, um, they, they would have been able to see these guys sweat. Mm-hmm. And I would have loved to see that happen. So, yeah. but we can still look at that today and have the perspective of reading scripture and knowing scripture. And I can only paraphrase, but there's a quote, uh, Carson, that says, you know, billions of years from now, will it matter when you're in heaven, when you're in eternity, the circumstance you're dealing with today? Yes, it's real, but in light of eternity, how's it going to affect you? Yeah. So trying to have an eternal perspective, especially when you've dealt with loss, I've dealt with loss. As you walk the journey of loss, you can still have joy because yeah. of because of Christ, That's and right. only because of Christ, not because of us. Okay, I'll stop preaching. Amen, Pastor <laughs> Brand. Pa- Pastor Brand. <laughs> Pastor Brand. Uh, let's try to, amen, Pastor Dan. Okay. There you well, go. It's funny. You are getting older, so you will be Pastor Brand eventually. <laughs> you don't need to remind me. No. All right. Well, uh, Joe, why don't, we, why don't we dive into part two of your interview with Mark Allen Shelsky. Well, let me take you a little different direction, because uh, one of the chapters in the book, it starts out with a story, uh, a guy named Elliot, um, and this, this, this particular part of the book resonated with me, um, because what you're addressing in that, uh, in that uh, chapter is, is drawing the, uh, the relationship between um, our emotions and our ability to reason. And, and I'll admit, oftentimes, I've definitely been guilty of this, we tend to think of uh, as emotion is a barrier to reasonable thought, um, but you demonstrate otherwise, and you you've talked about your research. I mean, you're bringing some of that research uh, into play here. Where this is not subjective. There's some physiological components to this um, that that make this true. I wonder if you could uh, could share a little bit about that topic with folks. Sure. I, it's, it's, this is just so fascinating to me. Um, before, before we talk about Elliot, let me back up a moment. One of the things that I do when I talk about this with folks, whether it's, um, you know, in a public speaking setting, or even when I'm doing one-on-one coaching or counseling, one of the things that I do is I ask people to do a quick test with me. I say, um, I'm going to tell you a sentence and I want you to, um, I want you to say that sentence to the person sitting next to you, or if I'm just with them, I I'm going to say it to them. I'm going to tell you the sentence. And then I want you to just check in with how you feel about it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so the, and so the first sentence that I say is, hi, you, you're, you're seeming really reasonable today. <laughs> right. And so I say that sentence and just say, okay, stop now and just check in internally with how you feel about being told that you're really reasonable. 
Right. And so they do that, right? And then I say, okay, hold that on one side. And now I'm going to say another sentence to you. And I want you to check in with how you feel about it. And that sentence is, my, you're seeming really emotional today. Yeah. Right. And so then I just say, how do those two things feel different? Yeah. Do you want me, you want me to answer you know, that question? And, yeah, I do. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so when you say you, you seem really reasonable today, my first thought is um, there's a there's a positive spin to that that says um, um, you're you're being thoughtful, um, you're taking things into account, um, you are uh, easier easy to work with. Let's say um, the emotional is to me. There's a suggestion that you are operating outside of um, an acceptable level of um, emotional. Um, you're operating outside of what's acceptable emotionally. You are being overly emotional. Um, and it makes me uncomfortable. Is that, uh, that's kind of what I hear when I hear those. Right. Yeah. So that is universally the case. Every single time I've done that experiment, people hear the word reasonable as a compliment. They hear the word emotional as a personal attack. They hear the word reasonable as a statement that they are uh, one of the mature people who can be trusted to make important decisions and to think something through and to come to a solution. And, and people hear the word emotional as a, as a, a, a statement of you, you, aren't, you aren't mature enough to be here. You shouldn't be a part of this decision. Um, maybe you're a little out of control. You're, um, you're not thinking clearly. You're not, you're not being rational. Okay, so that little experiment shows in just a few words um, a cultural mindset that we have, that it's embedded in our churches, it's embedded in our secular culture, it goes back thousands and thousands and thousands of years, um, and it's basically you know this idea that um, reason and logic and rational thinking are the highest expression of what we are as people, right? The famous, I think, there are, therefore I am uh, kind of concept. And emotion is is a hindrance, you know, and so you can go back and you can look at teachings of Greek philosophers, right, that would say, you know, reason is the height of man's glorious expression and emotion are wild horses that try and lead us into a pit of despair. Right. And, uh, and the person that's mature is the person who can keep a grip on the wild horses, you know, and and so we've, we've had this picture that reason and emotion are separate, unrelated things. And that reason is elevated and emotion is a hindrance, right? And in the church, um, that language has become spiritualized, right? Where we think of reason as being theological, as being um, good Bible study, as being um, expositional preaching. And we think of emotion um, in, a, in, in the best possible situation. Emotion is just kind of a distraction, but we also sometimes in the church say that emotion is temptation. It's Satan leading you astray. <laughs> Emotions will always deceive you. Um, you know, it's the heart that's deceitful above all things. And so you just like if if you're feeling emotionally drawn to something, you just know right off the top that that is not God's will for you. Right. And and so we have this bifurcation that these things are separate. And not only are they separate, but reason is the ideal of who we are and emotion is this uh, lesser at least lesser but maybe even worse uh, a thing that draws us away and can tear us down yeah. and uh, so what's been what's been um, 
for, for many, many, many years, that was the mindset. And even amongst people who studied these things, even in the 70s, um, you know, people who studied uh, brain science basically thought that emotions were not studyable that they were just completely subjective experiences that happened in the black box of your own head. There was no way to measure them. There was no way to quantify or study them. And so it wasn't, it didn't even make sense to try. And what's happened in the last few years, particularly with the, um, the advent of the fMRI scans and, and um, the neuro neurological studies that have resulted from our ability to see what's happening in the connections inside the brain, is that we've learned something completely different is happening. And so you reference the story of, of Elliot. That's in uh, the beginning of Chapter 8. Of, of my book, Reason, Secret, and Emotion's Purpose. And, and the secret that we're learning about reason is this. This, this man, Elliot, a short version of the story is he had a brain tumor. Uh, they discovered it quickly. He got into surgery. The brain tumor was removed successfully. Everybody was um, was you know happy that the outcomes were good. He was going to be able to get back to his life. And so he did. He, you know, he went through recovery and he got back into his life. And in a short period of time, strange things began to happen where um, he was a competent, educated man. You know, he had a high powered job. He had a family. He was capable of handling all of his own responsibilities. But then what was happening was he would find himself getting stuck in places that were strange. You know, so, for instance, he he couldn't make the choice about what he should wear to the office that day. And so his wife began to take over that responsibility of setting out his clothes for him. And then he'd get to the office and he'd be handed a stack of, of papers that he needed to process and, and deciding which file a paper should go in um, went from being a 30 second task where he could quickly move through these papers and get them filed to spending an hour or two or three hours trying to figure out you know, should this should this paper be filed here or should it be filed here or should it be filed here? Um, and then this uh, inability to make decisions uh, grew larger to where it was impacting choices like financial investments, where he uh, was not able to make choices about his finances that were that were uh, wise or or long term uh healthy for him. And so over a course of a few years, you know, he, he begins to lose everything. He loses his, he loses his job. He uh, ends up losing his family. Um, he loses all of his money. And where the story changes is that, you know, he had some family members that were trying to help him get disability insurance because uh, he, he wasn't able to work. And when he went through the various processes that they have for evaluating you for disability, they couldn't figure out anything that was wrong for him, wrong with him. Like he could, he could discuss right and wrong with you. He could talk about cause and effect with you. You could you could talk through a scenario and you could explain options to him and he could make a good choice when you were talking about it in the abstract. Right. And so and so the evaluators just decided that he was malingering, right? That he was that he was just making this up and so he didn't get approved for disability. And so uh, the family members that were worried about him, you know, began to look for other options. And so he ended up in the, um, the laboratory of, uh, of a man named Dr. Antonio Damasio, who's a, who's a neurosci, uh, neuro, a neurologist and neuroscientist at that, at that point in time, he was the, the, the head of uh, the brain and creativity Institute at the university of Southern California. And so Elliot comes in and they begin to evaluate him to try and figure out what's going on. And they do all of the standard neurological tests and nothing shows up as being a problem. And then, uh, as the story was related, one of the assistants in the, in the lab suggested that they 
uh, begin evaluating his emotional capacity, which was something that they hadn't touched. Right. And so they begin to do that, and something emerges that's completely unexpected, that all of the tests that they could do to, to measure his emotional response showed him being completely flat. So they would, you know, they have tests where they where they can measure like microscopic amounts of perspiration that that generate on your hands when you're when you're talking about emotional things, or they have other tests that gener- that test brain waves and just simple um, affect tests, right? Where they'll talk with you about a topic that's emotional and they'll see, you know, what kind of response do you have to it? And so when he's talking about his life and he's talking about all these losses. You know, and if you and I were talking about having lost our marriage, our job, and all of our money, if we were having to sit down and talk about that, we would be devastated. Yeah. You know, like our our we would we would be filled with regret, we would be filled with confusion, we might be angry, like we would we would have some kind of emotional response. And Elliot was completely flat, no affect about his life experience at all. They'd show him, you know, horrific you know, pictures and they would generate no emotional response. And so they began, they began to pursue this. And what they discovered with Elliot is that where this brain tumor had happened had, and the surgery to remove it had caused a lesion in a certain part of his brain. And as a result, the connection between his ability to reason through an abstract situation and his ability to feel a certain way about that situation had been broken. And so when he in his own life was coming up to decisions, what was happening is he had all the rational data coming in, whether it was something trivial like filing papers or something really important like how he treated his wife. He had all this data coming into his mind. He understood all the data that was coming into his mind. He could even tell you in conversation what consequences might happen if he took certain steps, but he did not have the emotional capacity to weigh and prioritize those different, those different pieces of data. And so then what came out of this study is the, the, um, the, the theory, the, uh, the suggestion that the way reason and emotion work together in our minds is that the rational part of our mind gathers in all of this data and begins to file it and associate it with things. And the emotional side of our, of our mind, if we think of them as sides, um, gives a, a weight to each piece of data. And that weight is made up of our emotional experience with those sorts of things. Like in the past, maybe someone ripped you off when you were in elementary school and you lost five bucks, but that emotional experience stuck with you. And so now you have a a hesitancy to trust people with your money, you know, and so that emotional weight would transfer onto this decision about whether you're going to make this investment. That side of it was gone. And so what uh, Dr. Damasio suggested is that this old model that we have that reason and emotion are kind of separate functions in our mind entirely is actually not what's happening at all, but that our mind as a holistic, as a holistic system deals with the data and it comes in and it gets sorted and it gets weighed and we make decisions on the basis of that. And if our emotional capacity is broken or if it's compromised in some way, let's say like through depression or mental illness or substance abuse or high stress, if our emotional capacity is compromised in some way or if we're just immature at interpreting our emotions, then what happens is our ability to make decisions is compromised. And so then that old picture that 
the best decision is a purely logical decision, that's a myth. Because you don't actually ever make purely logical decisions. Right, right. You, you might think that you do. But what's happening inside of you is that the, the rational data and the emotional data are coming together into one whole, and together they're allowing you to prioritize the things that you do. And so every decision that you make, every decision has a basis in your emotional life. And so that means that training our emotions is as important as training our mind. And so when we come back to the church and think about discipleship, where we started the conversation, the church has gotten really good at training the Christian mind. The church is doing very little to train the Christian heart. And that, I think, is one of the reasons why the church is in such a dire place in so many, pla- in so many situations, because we know all of this information, but our hearts are not keeping up. They're not, we're not feeling as we should about the things we're talking about. And because we're not feeling as we should, just because we know something doesn't mean that um, that we're going to ever take that step. Because the thing that moves us to take a final step is always emotion. Even if you're not a very emotional person, that was one of the things that was shocking to me to learn um, when I kind of did an inventory of my life. Every significant decision that I made, I made on the basis of emotion. I am not an emotional person, right? I'm not someone that would ever be accused of being flighty or, you know, that that statement of, you know, he's just really emotionally driven. That's not me at all. Every decision that I've ever made, I've had lists of pros and cons. I've thought through the consequences. I've made what I thought was a logical, rational choice. But the truth is that all of those pros and cons served an emotional energy and a motive within me that moved me in a certain direction. And that's, that's the case for all of us. So what are we going to do with that? Are we going to grow in that area of our life? Cause if we don't, then we're going to get stuck. And I think that's why your book is uh, very much a call to action. Uh, I, uh, that was your intention. At least that's from my perspective. It's very difficult for me to imagine faith without some aspect of emotion. Uh, and yet, uh, we, we tend in the Christian culture to, um, to not acknowledge it, to discourage it or dismiss it. Uh, and I think that's in many ways why, um, your book is very important and it's, and it's very, it's very timely in my opinion. Uh, one thing I do want to acknowledge while I've, well, I've got you here is, uh, this isn't just something that you write about. It's not just a, um, an, an idea uh, that you you're exploring. This is something. It's a it's a ministry for you, and and you are active working in this. Uh, one example, and I want to make sure people know about this as well, is um, you're involved with a ministry called, uh, or you've participated in a ministry called Shattering Stigma with Stories. Uh, some conferences that are at least are occurring here in the Northwest that I've attended. Uh, whose intention is to educate members of faith communities on mental illness. Tell me why uh, that's an important ministry for you uh, and how that relates to uh, the wisdom of your heart. Why well, I, I think that churches don't do a very good job talking about uh, emotional wellness and the extremes of that. When someone's, when someone's neurological system is really broken down, dysfunctional, um, that's mental illness. And we are really, I think, afraid of talking about that. Um, you know, if our church tradition is one where, you know, healing is a regular practice, then we'll talk about it there and we'll pray for people to be healed. 
but that's about it. Yeah. You know, and then we're, an- we're anxious and nervous when we, you know, when the topic comes up of talking about therapy or different therapeutic practices or, you know, medication or, or all these different things that, that people that are dealing with mental illness may need as a part of their recovery and healing. And so we don't talk about those things. And so, um, shattering the stigma with stories is a series of conferences that, uh, Tara Rolstead has founded and her friendly and Sype is also a part of. And these are amazing events where, um, they, meet in a church and they combine two things. They have practitioners come in and share really helpful, important, uh, useful information. Like they brought in people that have done training, like the suicide prevention training. They brought in people who've talked about how, uh, trauma, uh, trauma experiences impact our lives. And so trying to train the church in being trauma aware, but then it's not just practitioners. They also bring in people to tell their own stories. And so in that capacity, I've, I've spoken three times with, um, shattering stigmas and I've talked about uh, my experience of depression as a pastor, which is one of those things that we're not supposed to talk about, right? Pastors are supposed to have it all together. They're supposed to be the people who read the Bible and pray and God's working in their life and everything's wonderful. And, you know, for several years, that was not my, that was not my situation. And so I share that story and they would also bring in other people that talked about, uh, living with bipolar, uh, dealing with addictions and other things like that. And so the, the combination of the, the professional information and the people sharing stories is really powerful. And I think challenging for churches to begin thinking about how do we have these conversations so that we can love people well, right? That we can't, fulfill our mission as the church to invite people in to be a part of the community of Christ and to love them and to walk with them in growth. We can't do that if we're unwilling to talk about the struggles that they face. And and more truthfully, we can't do it if we're unwilling to talk about the struggles that we face. Yeah. Right? We in the church face this. You know, one of the things that they do at the beginning of the Shattering Stigma events is they um they do a, a an anonymous survey where they have you go down and check boxes uh, uh, about do you have experience in your life or your family with, and then there's a whole long list of things, you know, so depression, bipolar, schizophrenia, uh, suicidal thoughts, um, you know, it's, it's like 20 things. And it's just completely anonymous. And then they'll hand out those cards to other people so that you're holding someone else's card. And they'll ask you to stand as they go through each item on the list. And so they'll say, I wrestle with depression. And if the person whose card you're holding check that they wrestle with depression, you stand up. And what you learn is that like 80% of the people in the room are standing. Yeah. And that, and what that says to us is that in our churches where we're singing, you know, bouncy, happy Jesus songs, (laughs) and we're abjuring people to be faithful and to be holy and to trust God. And then we're sending them out into their life in our churches. (laughs) Lots and lots of people are struggling with these things. They're struggling with depression. They're struggling with uh, dark thoughts. They're struggling maybe with suicidal thoughts, maybe them or someone in their family. They don't know what to do. The church is not providing them very much help other than saying, pray more and read your Bible more. You know, and and how do we how do we come alongside people and help them grow if we can't talk about it? And so that, you know, I just I'm thrilled with the work that they're doing. And it's, you know, very much in line with why, you know, why I wrote this book. I didn't write this book because I set out with a, you know, a high horse position to say the church needs to change. I wrote this book because I nearly died from this problem. Yeah. You know, I ended up in a pit 
of just absolute despair where I nearly lost my family, my ministry, everything that mattered to me. And I share some of that story in the book, but the heart of it is that I did not have the tools to handle and deal with the emotions that I was experiencing. And I handled them in the way that I could, which was really broken and messed up. You know, and so for me, the book grew out of a, a process of learning about what was happening for me. And, um, you know, so in the book, there's there's basically there's four there's four parts to the book. The first part is my story and talking a little bit about kind of the mythology that has grown up in the church around emotions. The second part is a survey of scripture where I look at the life of Christ and language in the Old Testament about God to understand what the Bible says about emotions. And it's really surprising to discover that um, the picture that's painted of God in the Bible is embarrassingly emotional. Mm-hmm. And uh, what do we do? What do we do with that? And then the third part of the book is uh, looking at our best understanding of how emotions work in the body and the brain. And so that's where the story of Elliot comes in and beginning to look at what is actually happening in our body and our mind when we're feeling certain emotions. And then the fourth part of the book, which is the shortest, is actually where the journaling comes up. And I offer a a path. I say, here's a process that you can use that if you struggle with making sense of your emotions, here's a process that aligns with what we understand about emotions and what, what I presented from scripture that you can kind of walk through your emotional experience to mine it for wisdom so that you don't just have emotions and you're at the, at the whim of them. You're not just overwhelmed by emotions, but you actually have a process where, where you can stop, listen to your emotion, and find the, the kernel of truth that's in it so that you can move forward and, and actually take wise choices uh, rather than being reactive, rather than um, having your emotions kind of uh, put you in a place where you're, where you're not sure what to do. Um, emotions aren't a distraction. Emotions are messages from our deepest places. Emotions uh, don't always lie. Emotions always carry a seed of truth. That's how God designed them. And so part of growing emotionally or emotional discipleship is, is to learn how to do that, to learn how to listen to our emotions without being bowled over by them, to learn how to listen for the truth in our emotions without assuming that the very first assumption that we make is true. And, and how to bring that before God so that God can teach us and shape us in this part of our life. I want to affirm the work that you're doing. Self-care, uh, being self-aware emotionally is something that's important to me and, and really should be important to to all of us uh, as Christians and something that um, as, uh, as creatives um, – we should understand as well. Um, so I want to, I want to thank you for the book and just to remind people, the book is the wisdom of your heart. I also want to spell Mark. I'm going to spell your last name for people. So author is Mark Allen Shelsky, S C H E L S K E. So if you're looking for that on Amazon or at the bookstore, etc., that's how to find it. I'm going to ask you, Mark, one more question before we wrap up. And this has nothing to do with your book. It's just one of those random questions that we interviewers ask. Um, All right. okay. So you have, you've just, so people are aware he's gotten no coaching or prep on this. Um, okay. So I'm curious and I ask a lot of people this, um, about a guilty pleasure that you have creatively. And it could be, um, a book, a, a TV show you watch movies, music, you know, if you're a huge brain Manilow fan, you probably should keep that to yourself, but, uh, <laughs> share, share a guilty pleasure with us. A guilty pleasure. Yeah. Um, Probably, I don't know. I 
I'm not really into feeling a lot of guilt these days. <laughs> um, um, pro- probably, honestly, a guilty creative pleasure for me is um, cooking and cooking TV shows. Um, I'm a giant Gordon Ramsay fan, right. and um, I love cooking as not just to feed myself, but uh, as an art form. Nice. <laughs> you know, and learning about how the things work together and the components work and presentation and all of that. And uh, so – you know, the guilty part is probably that I have to be mindful. You know, I'm an old, I'm an older man now, so I have to be mindful of what I eat, you know, lest I, uh, lest I balloon up. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, reality TV is certainly not, um, you know, something I would not put it up there with the, you know, was it Philippians four that tells us, you know, whatsoever things are good and noble and lovely. <laughs> um, it, I wouldn't say that it qualifies for Maybe that not. <laughs> Certainly some less <laughs> but, than others. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. But I do enjoy that stuff quite a bit. And, uh, it's a, it's a wonderful outlet for me. You know, I think as a pastor, a lot of the work that I do, uh, doesn't ever come to completion. And, um, this book has been the longest creative project I've ever done. You know, it's the process of the book has been almost five years wow, yeah. and, and, uh, you know, that's a long time to be invested in a project. And so what's wonderful about cooking is, you know, you, you, you make something and it's beautiful and it's done and you enjoy it and then you clean up and it's over with. Yes. <laughs> I don't have a lot of that dynamic in my life. I understand. And also it's, it's a great, um, if it's a great parallel to what we've just been talking about the whole time. And there's a scientific aspect to cooking, but there's also a very creative and uh, artistic aspect to it. Uh, these all come together for a, a full experience. And, and maybe we, we need yep. to look at, uh, look, look at our own emotions and our own logic and, and reason like you do in the book as a Star Trek episode. You can't have Kirk without Spock or vice versa. The two of them together are way, yeah. what makes a powerful relationship. So Mark, thank you for, for joining us today and sharing so much about the book. I'm excited for people to experience it. In my mind, this is the kind of stuff that should be required reading for people in the church. It's something that we need to be more aware of. Thank you so much. I appreciate the time. All right, that was uh, that's the conclusion of uh, my interview with Mark Allen Shelsky, and I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, just kind of a reminder out there: the name of the book is "The Wisdom of Your Heart: Discovering the God-Given Purpose and Power of Your Emotions." Um, it just came out uh, first part of uh, September, so it's brand new, and uh, some wonderful stories in there and some wonderful insight. I also want to encourage you to check out Shattering Stigma with Stories. Now, it's a mental health ministry that brings to light, you know, some um, some mental health issues and, and tries to give some um, uh, some framework around which you can have those conversations in your church. Mark's very involved in that. Just something to um, to to bring to to your congregation. At least it's something that's important in my congregation. We've actually had some people come forward and say, "Can we do some some groups?" around like adults with depression mm-hmm. um, and parenting with depression and things like that. We're a small church. We're less than a hundred people. So if those conversations are happening there, you know, there are definite, there's a population with four out of five people oh, suffers yeah. from some form of, uh, has some sort of struggle along those lines. So yeah, well, in anyway, a church I'm, of 250, we, we have at least a dozen here that would, would readily identify with that. Yeah. It's um, not everybody will, right? No, it's true. You see, giving, giving people permission, you know, to have a conversation and to say, 
hey, you're not by yourself in this. Um, and what you're feeling is what a lot of people feel. I'm not going to be dismissive of it. I just, I want to shine, shine some light on that. I, you yeah. know, let's not keep it in the dark. So anyway, mm-hmm. something that's uh, very important to me and my wife is a mental health professional. You're going to hear more about that than you ever care to hear. There you go. Uh, I'll be out there going, go mental health, self-care. <laughs> you guys are going to be sick of me. Anyway, well, thank you. Um, yeah. And as we move forward, uh, we do have some more interviews lined up. So look mm-hmm. forward to that. And uh, we look forward to connecting with you. And make sure you contact us at Dan or Joe at Frequency.fm. Uh, we're on social media, Facebook, Twitter, um, probably most active on Twitter for, for a quick response. Uh, but mm-hmm. we, we love getting emails from you. And be sure to rate us on iTunes. It pushes us up in the, the listings a bit. And uh, we want to share uh, this podcast with more people. So thanks for listening, and we will talk to you soon. Take care, folks. <laughs>